Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Welcome, young adventurers, and on today's podcast, I have Shaheen Shane. During the Iranian Revolution in 1978, Shaheen's family escaped to survive and ended up finally immigrating to Los Angeles, California. And at 15 years old, Shaheen left home with nothing but the clothes on his back and created over a billion dollar in revenue by inventing the legendary smart drug known as herbal ecstasy. This childhood experiences had major impact on his perspective of freedom, hard work, and entrepreneurship. Later, Shaheen went to invent the digital vaporization, a forerunner of today's vapes, and started a number of successful businesses with a couple notable figures. Today, he is the founder and CEO of Accelerate Intelligence, Inc., a major Amazon FBA seller with millions in sales and a lead coach at Amazon Mastery, where he teaches entrepreneurs how to crush it in the Amazon platform and active YouTubers. Without any further delay, I'd like to welcome Shaheen. Hey, hey, buddy. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Dylan. You look so much more mature with the beard than mm-hmm. with your thumbnail pick. It's amazing. <laughs> like, it adds 10 years to your face right there. I appreciate that. I'm going for the Leonidas look. I want to I wanna have the whole – I can't grow it on the top, but I only got it on the side. So I'm just, I'm just, 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 just trying to make that fuller. That's my attempt. <laughs> I like it. It's a little Viking. Looks good. <laughs> appreciate it brother no thanks for coming on man i'm excited to talk to you about this and talk about the genesis of like how you got started in the areas of herbal ecstasy or nootropics as a field i mean that's such an important area i mean it's one of the original hacking the codes hacking the brains hacking the system if you had the cheat codes for games being able to change the neural functions is a really fascinating topic so i'd love to learn a little bit about the genesis of what got you into that space and 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 how do you end up there I love that. And I love that framework of cheat codes. You know, I come from the eighties, which would be like Atari, my uh, good friend, Nolan Bushnell, who invented Atari. And I remember playing with those games and always trying to figure out like, is there a secret room, a secret door somewhere in, in one of those old module games. So that's, it's, it's a really good framework. I started off, uh, we came to this country, like you very uh, appropriately said, as as refugees in the late 70s. Coming from Iran, we came to the United States. And we moved, we were, we were well-to-do in Iran. Moving to the United States, we were poor, lower middle class at best. And we somehow managed to buy a house in an area that was up and coming, and as a kid, I didn't really speak very much English. My dad worked at a cleaners and a pizza shop. We were always just trying to make ends meet. And it just so happened that the area where we had bought the house started up and coming, started becoming gentrified, started, you know, fancy houses started being built overnight, fancy cars started showing up. And I remember thinking to myself that I wanted a piece of that wealth. But I was just a kid, of course, and so I continued through school. School was fairly disappointing. I realized very quickly that we were second and third class citizens being Iranian during the Iran-Contra scandal, Reaganomics. We were at, at the total bottom of the totem pole, and not speaking very good English put me at an even higher disadvantage. 
So I managed to start a criminal enterprise in my adolescence at school. We had nice. all the misfits. Yeah, and I, I, I write about it in my book, Billion, How I Became King of the Throw Cult, which we'll give links later too. But in my book, I share the story of how I created a group of misfits. I just recruited everybody that nobody wanted to. People called us all kinds of names, but it didn't matter to us because we were already well at the bottom. Every single one of us, there was something wrong with us. We were minorities. We were disabled. There was something wrong with every one of us. And one of the kids on my team was, uh, you're not supposed to say mid, so I'm not going to say midget, but let's say he was a very small young man and he was very cute. Nobody expected anything from him, a little Greek kid. Mm-hmm. And he would wear very big clothes and we would go to the liquor store and he would walk in. We would all go look gum and stuff. He would distract the the people there or we would distract the people there. He would start stuffing new magazines, little bottles of liquor, you name it into his overstuffed jackets. And because he was so short, he'd be able to slide under the metal detectors undetected and we would pay for a pack of gum, but then we would have alcohol, nudie magazines, cigarettes, you name, you name it, contraband. The problem was that while we were very good at relieving the liquor store of their inventory, we were terrible at crime. We were horrible criminals. We would constantly get busted. We were way too obvious. There's Nobody would expect kids like us to ever get away with anything. We would get busted even if we didn't do anything. The fact that we were doing stuff led us to detention where, of course, our business grew even further because what do you get in detention? Other misfits, other mutants like yourself that are involved in crime. Uh-huh. But I had the the foresight to realize that I was not good at crime. So, so fast forward to me being years old. Now I speak English and I'm just trying to find my way, asking my parents, hey, you know, I see the dude next door. He's got all this fancy stuff. That guy's got a Porsche. That guy's got a blonde, gorgeous girlfriend and, uh, you know, two Ferraris. Like, I want that. How do I get that? And my parents, being the classic immigrant story, told me, well, son, you know, you have to uh, become a doctor. Because, of course, in immigrant families, that that is the pinnacle of success to become a doctor is every Jewish mother's hope. It's it's the biggest form of guaranteed success in a mind. It's like, okay, you have absolute safety because, you know, it's always in demand. People getting sick, people getting ill, whatever it might be is in demand. And so if you have the highest skill sets, then it's one of those things of what's the greatest chance for success with the lowest chance of safe with, uh, with the greatest amount of safety. And that's one of the biggest things. Very rarely they say, be a wild entrepreneur, do something that no one's ever done before, go off on your own. And it's completely risky. By the way, take all of your money and throw at it and dig at it for a while. And most people fail, but we got faith in you. That's very rare because parents want you to be safe. They, they want you to be successful. They don't care about your success as much as they care about your safety. And so they're trying to get you to do something that is intuitively hard, that is a more of a guaranteed win. They don't want you to take that lotto ticket, but they want that win. What I think is really interesting that what you noted on right there is there's a lot of things that happen in people's lives. And the stories of a lot of heroes' journeys that you had a moment when you were a kid that you saw potential. You saw an opportunity. You saw someone who had wealth. You, someone, you saw someone who had an opportunity. And you said, I want that. And then that got burned into your consciousness. And then you tried to go about it in, in whatever ways you could, you know, criminal activities, because that's the easiest, quickest. But then you kind of seemingly you went to your parents. And my guess is, so you ended up becoming a doctor and quitting all of these other things. And that was the path you went down. Or was it 
or what what happened <laughs> after after that path was opened up to you? Well, so so of course I went to my parents and they said, you know, become a doctor." And I said, "Like who?" And they said, "You know, like Mister Rafsani next door. Look at him. He has wife. He has Benz, Mercedes, big house." I said, "All right, uh, okay, cool. I'll sign up for that. I want all that stuff. Yeah, let's do that." How long do I have to go to school? They said, well, well, uh, you know, four years of college and, and then four years of special, four years of internship. All those four years add up. It was like, I was like, dude is 50 and he's fat. The whole family's fat. You big old bellies. And he leaves at 5 a.m. He comes back at 8 p.m. The bank owns his house. The bank owns his car. The bank probably owns the whole family. This guy has no freedom. That is not a metric for me. I do not want that. I want what that guy, the guy driving the Ferrari down the street. I want that. How do I get that? And my parents had no answer. They didn't. So I packed my bags. I did what any self-respecting 15-year-old would do. I packed my bags and I left home, cut all ties. I knew in, in that moment, Dylan, that this would not be the only time but the first time I needed to burn my ships in order to succeed. I was a very extreme individual. And I had made it a point that, you know what, I'm going to fucking make it in life or I'm going to die trying. So I left. So I, let me pause for one second on that one. You talked about, okay, you at 15 years of age, you decided to pack up and leave your home, right? And, and yeah. was what gave you the mental confidence to believe in yourself enough? What was the story you told yourself or what the experience that you had that actually said, Yes, this is something that I can do, and I believe that I can figure this out. And what gave you? Because usually at that time, people are very dependent on their parents for you know life and all that yeah. stuff. So, what was the what Great was question. your mental narrative, and what was the experience that shaped that that allowed you to believe in yourself enough to take that step? Really good question. The answer to that is the fucking alternative, man. The fucking alternative was to go through the path of maybe becoming a doctor or worse yet, falling into mediocrity with all the other poor motherfuckers who are out there who are not doing what they want to do and are doing what they're told, who are obeying, who are falling in line with the destiny that somebody else has written for them. I was like, fuck that. This is definitely not for me, man. I, I want freedom. I want it all. And I'm fucking going to go get it. I was reading at that time all the great self-help, personal development, business books of the old times. I was reading the original Think and Grow Rich. I was reading Tony Robbins. I was reading Augmentino, Wayne Dyer, all of that stuff. It, it was abnormal for a preteen to read that stuff, but those books were my friends. I got the Tao of Jeet Kune Do by Bruce Lee. I went to train at one of his, uh, his, his colleagues, uh, you know, his prodigy, uh, studio. When I was a kid, I went down there and I decided, Hey man, I read that book and it shook my life. And I wanted to be part of that. And I was willing to do whatever it took. And similarly, when it came down to business, I was like, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing right now, but the alternative looks real fucking shitty. So I am out and I bailed. There was no, it, it, it seems you and me having the conversation that it was a choice in my head. There was no choice. I was ready to go. Plus, I had my ass handed to me so many freaking times growing up. Got my ass kicked so many times. Bullied so much. The 80s were a very different story that I quickly realized that if I was going to get anything in this world, if I was going to come up and step up, I was going to have to get it for myself. That the world was not out there 
to help me unless I was willing to go out there and make a name for myself and get it myself. And that's what I, that's what I went out to do. That's beautiful. Uh, we probably are both unique in this area because I remember being in junior high, going to the high school, running tracks, running around the track, listening to Tony Robbins on like a yellow cassette tape, the ones that didn't quite skip because they were sock shock food, eating those old protein bars that were kind of bricks. You could throw them and you could you could oh, eat yeah. them or you could use them as nunchucks or weapons if you tied them together. So they had lots yes. of their multi-tourist tool. They really, <laughs> really could do a lot, you know. Uh, and so uh, I, I relate with the listening to those types of tapes, trying to evolve yourself as you go along the path, although I, I didn't leave home at 15. So I commend you on that step. At what point did you think you maybe bit off more than you chew? What I would call the first threshold guardian. When you stepped across, you moved out, you said, I'm going to do this or I'm going to die. And then you face the possibility of, whoops, maybe this was more than I could take. Did that ever yeah. happen? And if so, what was that? What was that experience like? Totally, totally. And I love that story about cassette tapes. How old are you, Dylan? I'm 38, 38. Okay, no way. You look like a much younger guy. Yeah, I'm pushing 46 at the time of this recording. All right, so the answer to your question is this. The first step is easy. Just got to take that first step because some part of you says you can always go back. The first night was when I started to realize this shit is real. When you leave... Now you got to plan where you're going to sleep that night. It's not, I'll figure it out tomorrow. You have to figure out in that moment where you're going to sleep and what you're going to do. That made things very real because I had to factor in shelter. I had to factor in food. I had to factor in, you know, just hygiene and being able to take care of myself. Fortunately, I was fairly intelligent. LA was going through a building boom at the time. And they were building all these beautiful big buildings in LA, luxury apartment buildings with hundreds of units, all empty and under construction. I learned quickly that the brokers would come to show and open, they would have these lock boxes. And the first row of apartments would usually get the most attention and the last row would be months away. So all I would have to do is figure out the code. I'd be able to get in there, sleep at night in the luxury apartment, in one of the ones, wake up before anybody came, clean up and be gone. And that's what I did for the first little while. That was the first, my, my first night out. I also had a Lincoln Continental that I had purchased. It didn't run at the time, but I was able to sleep in the trunk of that thing. I had the pages of Think and Grow Rich taped to the trunk and I would read with a flashlight. It was kind of fun. It was like camping. It wasn't that bad. And occasionally I would fall asleep on the beach. And that was my first foray into independence yeah and did you what happened did you have that, yeah did you have a game plan so you said you came up with the idea of camping out in these luxury homes that people aren't occupying did you see that ahead of time before you left you're okay when i leave no. i'm gonna go do that or did you have to you, no. you figured that out on the fly you were walking down the street you looked over you saw these luxury homes and you go i'm willing to bet that they're not going to show this off and so i just need to hang around and look for the access code when they're not paying attention is that that's right on the fly. It was all on the fly. Everything was on the fly in those days. In fact, okay. nowadays, most things are on the fly. But yeah, it was on the fly back then. And I was very quick to quick to move, quick to act. When you need to survive, 
you know, you get creative. And that's, that's what I did. I got, I got very creative in those days. From there, I managed to figure out that you can get free meals at a community college. Community college usually had events all the time happening where they're serving free food and tea and coffee and pastries and stuff. So I would hang out at the community college sometimes to get some extra food if I needed to eat. I realized the hot dog stands would give you uh, ketchup and relish, and I was vegetarian in those days. Vegan, in fact, worst thing I ever did. So I would I would I would survive on basically those two things. It was fairly easy and they had him over at the community college so I could shower and you know, pretty much live a more or less normal life. And I met my first mentor yeah, at the community college. I got involved in the electronic music scene, the EDM rave scene, which was booming in the 1990s here in California with the mentorship of this man who was mentoring me. And I started realizing that I could actually fall asleep in the clubs behind the speakers as well. It was very easy. It was warm. They would go from late at night to early morning. It was perfect. I could come in, hang out a little bit, crash behind the speakers, wake up in the morning, maybe hang out a little bit more, and then go about my day. It was, it was actually pretty epic. And soon, very quickly, I realized that at the raves, the people who were throwing them weren't making money. The people who were playing the music, the DJs, Nobody respected people who were playing other people's music. Those guys weren't getting paid. The locations weren't getting paid. These people didn't really drink very much. They were much more into the drugs. The only people that were making money were the drug dealers. The guys hanging out at the back of the club subsidizing all the evening's events so they could sell their pills. Now, mind you, Dylan, I was at the right place at the right time. The supply of the most famous drug at that time, ecstasy, MDMA, methyl dioxy, methamphetamine, also known as Molly, had dried up. And they were all itching for more, but no way to get it. Most of the stuff, it was a more difficult drug to produce. Most of it was coming from overseas, places like Holland, places like the UK, where they had higher technology for production of that particular drug. And it was Reaganomics. They had stopped everything coming in. Well, I thought to myself, man, what if I went into another criminal enterprise and started selling this stuff? And then immediately I smacked my own hand and said, dude, are you crazy? Do you remember how bad you were at crime? You are the worst person on earth at crime. You should not be doing crime. So I chose to listen to that voice. And I had a little bit of a moment of a workaround. And I thought to myself, what if there was a way I could do it that didn't involve crime? And of course, I'm talking to myself again, saying, Shane, what the fuck are you talking about? If I can make an herbal version of ecstasy that had no side effects, that gave the same euphoric effects without the downside, I would make millions. I want to do that. And of course, I never got the memo that it was impossible. I'm sure a lot of people threw that shade my way, but I just looked the other way. I managed, even in my broke assness, the maximum broke assness that I had in those days, to get myself a girlfriend. Guys don't need money to get a girlfriend, by the way. All you guys that are thinking, man, I wish I had a girlfriend. And I, mean, I, I had no zero, less than zero money. I managed to convince her. Her dad was a superintendent at some school district. Managed to convince her when her dad left through the front door to allow in through the back door to cook up prototypes in her kitchen and to try it on all the mischievous adolescents frequenting her neighborhood. And it started how, there. How did you know uh, 
how did you know what chemicals to mix together? What would what did that process look like? I'm I'm very curious because that's a it, there. I feel like there'd be a couple of uh, steps along that path that you might have skipped to get from had a girlfriend, mix things together at a house, and started feeding them to people. So what was it? Was there in between on that part? Great question. That's the most common question that people always ask me as 15, how did you know what to mix together? The yeah. answer is there was no chemicals in it. So, you know, it was all herbal. Uh-huh. So it was a mixture of herbs. And the, the, the real answer to your question is it doesn't fucking matter. I'll give you that, the technical answer to what you're asking. The fact that nothing was going to stop me from getting from where I was to where I wanted to be. Nothing was going to get me from getting there. So it absolutely didn't matter to me that there was a little bit of information that I didn't have, a little bit of money that wasn't in my possession yet, resources that I didn't have. None of that stuff mattered. What I did was I, st- I went to the library. I started picking up books. I started reading. I picked up this thing that we had back in those days called the Yellow Pages, which was like this mega massive book that they printed that had all kinds of phone numbers and stuff in it. And you could call anybody up and people would list their numbers back in those days, you could call people and they would actually answer. and. Sure, some people told me to fuck off, but some people didn't. It, you only need one. And I had all kinds of people that said, sure, kid, we'll help you. Why not? We'll help you. That's so and funny. I got a list of herbs. I went down to Chinatown. I convinced the guy to, to front me some herbs. He'd never done that before, but he was like, sure. They, they smell it on you. They see it in your eyes. These guys knew that I was hungry. They knew that I wasn't going to say no. He knew that if he said no to me, I'd go to the guy next door. If that didn't work, I'd go to the guy next door. There was no shortage of doors for me to knock on. Somebody would eventually give me what I wanted because they would see in my eyes the authenticity of my mission. And, and your that's mission, what I did. And the yeah. mission that they could tell was around... You want to succeed and be successful no matter what. Was that the mission? No, I was going to make a fucking dent in the universe. I was going to change an industry. I was going to disrupt the way things were going on. The flow of drugs into the clubs, the the use of ecstasy, the way we use drugs, all that stuff had, had never been disrupted. And, and later on, we can talk about it. The government uh, was was coming after me they didn't know what to do because I didn't fit in any of their molds. What was the motivation behind creating the mission? Fucking necessity, man. It was the fact that I was driven. It was all that stuff that we talked about in the beginning part of this call was the fact that I wanted to achieve. I, A, wanted to put a dent in the fucking universe, as Walter Isaacson says about Steve Jobs in his his amazing biography about Steve Jobs, but also was the fact that I wasn't fucking going back. I had burned my ships, willing to sleep in the back of that car in those abandoned apartment buildings that sometimes didn't have power, sometimes didn't have water at the community college behind the speakers. It didn't matter how long it took. I was willing to do whatever it took to reach the level that I wanted to reach. What did you pull on? Like, so, so there's, there's probably moments where generally people might have, uh, I'll say, social concerns. What will people think of me? Or you have fears of like, may I not survive? Or one of those things. And did you ever? Because it seems like there's absolute, there's a lot of certainty in your communications, like in what you were going on, your mission, the driven, gonna figure it out. I'm gonna knock on this door. I'm gonna open this thing. I'm going this way, no matter what. It didn't seem like there's a lot of second guess, guessing inside your your narrative. Is there? Was there moments that you had second guessing, or was it just absolute? 
you had an absolute certainty. And if it was absolute certainty the entire time, how did you keep that alive? Because the, one of the challenges with people that are on missions like that, they get distracted, they get depressed, they get setbacks, there's things that slow their roll. What, yeah. what about you allowed you to keep that certainty and what, and, and, and were there any moments that you did have a gap from have having uncertainty saying, I do not know if I can actually complete this. The answer is the same as the first question is the alternative. I had burnt my ships. They say the most dangerous man is the one with nothing to lose. I'm a big fan of UFC. I don't know if you watch UFC, but I'm a huge fan of UFC. And when you watch it, you look at these guys. If you look at their history, the ones that have nothing to lose are the most dangerous ones. You look at some of our great fighters now, some of the shiny, fancy ones. I won't mention any names, but they get comfortable. They get cushy. They get set in their ways, and they've got a lot to lose and sponsorships and millions of dollars. And then they end up losing the fights. They end up losing the fights because they lose the hunger. Mm. You know, in Thailand, it's a, a very interesting story. In Thailand, what they do, are, are you familiar with Thai boxing at all? Have you ever seen Thai kickboxing? I've, yeah. I've seen it. I have not participated in it. Sure, sure. One of the great martial arts uh, alive today. Very, very ruthless, lethal martial art. A, a, amazing. And in Thailand, what they do is they have these prisoners that are in prison for, for life, on death row, for all kinds of issues. And what mm -hmm. they will do is they will give them an opportunity to train Thai boxing. If they against somebody who comes from another country, uh, uh, somebody who comes from their own country but is a pro fighter, they get a pardon, released. How often do you think these criminals alleged criminals, people that are in jail will lose these fights. Not very oh, often. Yeah. It reminds me of the scene from <clears throat> Rocky Balboa. And, it's, and I appreciate you explaining the yellow pages for people that don't know what the yellow pages are. It's just, it's fun for you to do that. You got to do some young explaining on these shows, my friend. I know, man. I know. You know, some people nowadays, see, when we make a phone call, we make a phone call, Chester, we do this. But kids do this. They make a flat hand versus the kind of the shock of hand. It's a it's a different motion because this is this is their phone. Uh, the shock of hand is our phone. It's just yeah. it's just fun to, to watch those those gaps. Uh, but what you're talking about in terms of the hunger is the same thing when like Rocky Balboa, uh, you know, lost his hunger and then he took him back and he said, "This is the eye of the tiger." You can see the hunger that people still have because they're still going. I think one of the best places ever to be is in second place because when you get the first place, you tend to slow slow things down. But if you keep in second place and you feel like someone's right behind you and someone's in front of you, you have that momentum to keep you keep you going and keep that hunger alive, that eye of the tiger. So, I mean, a lot of that makes sense. And so you've been have you felt that wane as you've gone and you've gone from like pit to peak along the journey? Or have you been able to consistently keep that alive and strong? You mean now in, in present day? I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, present day. You've gone through this, and you're, you're talking about the journey yeah. that you did not want. You didn't want to. You didn't want to lose this. You said you had no choice. But then, when people generally make it to plateaus, they're like, "Oh, I can take it easy. Everything's okay. I'm now. I'm now going to coast." Or are you able to maintain that hunger as you age throughout the years and be able to find new ways to keep that hunger alive? Yeah, it's a great question. You have to redirect that energy somewhere. So mm -hmm. life, you know, it, when we watch movies or stories, you usually watch, like you said, the, the heroes 
journey. You watch that arc mm-hmm. that goes up and then it comes down and then, you know, there's some redemption at the end and you have all those parts to it. Real life isn't necessarily like that. That is the, the format of storytelling, but the format of real life could be a variation of those. There could be periods in one's life where you actually take time to relax and recoup and regroup and about your next thing. In fact, most entrepreneurs that I know have periods of super high productivity, followed by a lull, followed by a, a liquidity event or some type of event where the, the company is sold, and then followed by a period of, of rest and regrouping. Or in some cases, they just keep going. They have multiple verticals going and they just keep going. The mm. point of the matter is, is that you have to have something that drives you. And that isn't necessarily the thing that you do for money. For me, it's my family. I have a beautiful boy, a a gorgeous wife, and we like to travel the world. And they are my motivation for everything that I do. I'm a family man through and through. My whole thing is family first, family values. That's, That's what I'm all about. And that's what drives me, a better life for my kid. I want to create a sphere for him. I want to create a better environment, better that we live in. And so what I do, I focus on that. Like even now where I teach people how to start Amazon businesses and grow them, I have people from walks of life getting involved in that. And it feels good to me because I can inspire and empower other people to do what I've done and at the same time watch that grow and flower into having each of them making their own little impact, their own little dent in the world, which is very exciting for me. Well, that's, that's powerful. And, and you touched on a really good point is being able to shift your focuses to continually get the same output by getting different sources of energy. You know, sometimes it's inspiration, sometimes it's towards pleasure, sometimes it's away from pain. So all of that makes a lot of sense. So as you as you go along the path, you got to find a, a new source of energy to kind of keep you on the grind. And then you said, you know, you've been able to um, coach people and guide people on how to be able to do it for their own life and their own business. Um, bringing that back to the ecstasy world, the herbal ecstasy world and marketing. When it comes to marketing, did you was was your first exposure to the marketing, the branding, the naming going, "Oh, people want ecstasy, so I'm going to put my I'm going to put the name ecstasy on what I'm selling because there'll be an inherent demand in the name and I'm going to I'm going to basically bolt on my product to that brand and then skyrocket up with that because there's a lack of that product and I'm going to call my product X versus you call you call it, you know, uh, uh, Mr. S's super happy pill, maybe not have the same impact as herbal ecstasy. So was that your first exposure to understanding that if you name something differently, it's, it's, it's a very powerful insight to actually getting people to convert and buy from you. Let me tell you this. I think first and foremost, all sales, all influence, all marketing, everything starts with one thing and it can't be taught. Mm. It's authenticity. Be a real fucking person. Be a, be genuine. If you don't know who you are, you got to discover that first. And then everything you do becomes genuine. That's the key. And you can't teach that. There's no, no hack for that. As far as herbal ecstasy goes, it's an interesting story. Because when you're genuine, when you're authentic, I feel you'll truly get into a flow state. And once you are in a true flow state, like in Chicksat Mihai's book, Flow, Stephen Kotler talks about this a lot in his book, Art of the Impossible. There's a lot of people that have done a lot of great work in this area. Once you're in flow, it's how the things that you need 
to go on your journey and succeed just come to you. It's You're not pushing anymore against the world. The world is coming to you. Mm. In this instance, I was at my girlfriend's house in the kitchen. We made a batch. We noticed everybody was dancing and having fun. Fucking worked. We had the formula. We had broken the mold. I didn't have enough money to get a machine that puts the herbs in a capsule. So we were rolling them up. We would mix honey with it. It, we would roll them up into the shape of pills and put them into baggies. We'd dry it out in the oven and put it into the baggies. And that night, I decided I'd have to burn my ships again. I'm going to the club. Walked into a electronic party. Mm. Walked up to one of the biggest drug dealers in California, arguably in the world at that time, with ecstasy. Ecstasy dealers, I should say. And in the 80s, having tattoos on your face Dylan was a totally different thing. Now, if you have tattoos on your face, they call you Post Malone and give you a platinum yeah. record. Back in the 80s, even having a small tattoo on your face was a sign that you were criminally insane. People would either run away or feel very sorry for you. This man had tattoos on his face. He had the three little tear things that I think meant he killed someone in prison. He had gold teeth. He had scars. This was not a the most friendly of human beings. He had two girls who were kind of rough, but pretty behind him. He had bodyguards. I said, this is it. Walked up to him and I said, hey man. He's like, look, I'm out of drugs. Uh, you know, I'm out of E. And I said, no, no, I no, I don't do that stuff. No. He's like, what are you, a cop? And I said, no, do I look like a cop? I'm a teen. What kind of cop's a teen? I'm not even old enough to be a cop. He said, okay, well, what do you want? Dude, you're going to sell this holding up a baggie of black, like, goo-filled things. I said, fuck off. What are you doing here? Like, you're going to get killed. Get the fuck out of here. Uh -huh. And in that moment, I saw my life flash in front of my face. I thought to myself, this is the worst idea ever, that I am surely going to die tonight. But my feet were planted, almost like they were glued to the dance floor. I could not move. And I just looked at him, and he saw the determination in my eyes, that I wasn't going to move until he took me up on my offer. And just then some people came up. He was out of drugs. And I said, look, man, you're out of drugs. You're either going to go to jail or you're going to sell bad shit that's going to get people sick. Or you can sell my stuff. It's legal. You know, it works. He's like, does shit work? I said, yeah, absolutely. And so I came back. The longest two hours of my life, I came back. And he had sold it all. He had sold the entire backpack that I had filled previously with the pills. And he motioned for me to come forward. And I looked at him and it was just a moment. He was he was sizing me up, looking at me, sweat pouring bullets, sweat bullets all off me. And he goes, kid, how soon can you get me more? That was it. It was on. And in that moment, he looks at me and he goes, by the way, what do you call this shit? And I said, herbal ecstasy. And that was it. It was the right place, right time, synchronicity wow. in the flow. It went from one guy to a thousand guys to 10,000 guys. I spent a lot of time with a briefcase, a duffel bag, a pager, all filled with pills or cash. And I would so go around selling my pills. So your network of distributors were drug dealers at the gate? That was your Correct. network? Wow. It was an unrealized distribution network that nobody else had tapped into for anything but drugs. And I now utilized to sell my pills. I turned them all into my employees. A lot of them became legitimized from that. A lot of them went from being mid-range drug dealers inside clubs to having territories, distributors, 
partnerships. A lot of them opened up shops where they were selling our product. We had thousands of ecstasy stores all over the world. And a lot of them picked territories, Miami, Phoenix, Los Angeles, all over the country. We had the ecstasy stores and we were selling our product close to about 30,000 stores. Mind you, I am still in my teens, late teens, early 20s. And we are employing over 200 people, everybody in Venice Beach, anybody who could fog up a mirror was working for me. I walk into my office, Dylan, and mm. it wouldn't be unusual for me to fall asleep in the seat of one of my exotic cars. I had a collection of exotic cars, fall asleep on the factory floor, fall asleep at my office. I would be going on one or two hours of sleep. We were making the stuff for 25 cents and I had multiple manufacturing facilities all over the world and we were selling it for $20. As quickly as we could get it in, we were selling it. We were in Urban Outfitters, Warehouse Records, GNC, which is General Nutrition Center. We were selling in 7-Eleven. Anywhere you went, all the clubs. We went on tour with the Beastie Boys at Lollapalooza. We were selling everywhere. And I walk into my office, and the secretary is pale-faced. And she looks at me and says, Shaheen, I don't know how to tell you this, but we've broken a billion dollars in revenue. Sam Donaldson is in a limo outside with Nightline. Montel Williams is, wants you to fly out to his show tomorrow. London Observer, Details Magazine, two Newsweek covers, Newsweek International, People Magazine, all of them want you on. And I had a panic in that moment where I thought, holy fuck, I have no idea how much a billion dollars is. I didn't. I literally did not know how much money a billion dollars was. That was my level of sophistication at that time. And it led to a wild ride that I write about in my book, Billion, How I Became King of the Pull Cult. There was a certain point where the mob got involved and they wanted to take over my business. I flew to Japan on a private plane to meet one of the leaders of the Yakuza, the Japanese mafia, and things started to get pretty crazy. Wow. That's incredible. And it's one of the things that, what, uh, in terms of the hero's journey's model, you talk about a thousand unseen hands that guide you on the journey. And you, by being on the path, doorways open up that are not unseen, that you can't plan for, that no one else will see. But you're there because you're there, right place, right time. Those doors will open up for you, and which will bring you into a whole different reality, which is really powerful stuff. But the <clears throat> the sheer balls you have to go in front of a drug dealer and tell him to sell your stuff is pretty impressive along that path. And again, it, it was just one of those things that your your mental model was. I have no choice. I have to do this. I'm going to burn the bridge behind me. I'm going to do this no matter what. And through sheer determination and force of will and opportunity and luck that does open up, you're able to step into this and see a, a whole new reality. Is was there was there any like so on this up and up and up trajectory? Was there was there a downslope at all? Did, did was it did it ever get too crazy or was it just a, was it a ride to the top and then exit out and then start something new? It was always too crazy, man. The government started coming up after us. We got wow. sued by everybody in in you know that you could imagine or not imagine people you knew, people you didn't know. When they see a teenage kid with, remember, we made a billion dollars, over a billion dollars in revenue pre-internet, pre-Facebook, pre-social media, pre-cell phones, pre-fucking smartphones, pre-all this shit. Uh-huh. And I was a teenager. I had, no, I had no college education. I didn't have a high school education. I did not go to high school. I did not understand how the world of business worked beyond 
two feet in front of my hands. Or there, there were many times where I would go to the library and get a book to try to figure out something that was going on in my business. All I'm picturing is the kid from Home Alone uh, that just ends up in Hollywood and doesn't quite. He's like ordering, just maxing out the car, just trying to just enjoying the life. Extra large pizza. John, Donald Trump walks past you down the aisle. You know things like right. that going on. What's the what's the most ridiculous thing you spent money on during those teen years? What is the thing that was absolutely oh silly? Yeah, that I spent money on. Well, we had the boats and the plane, mm-hmm. and the, we had the man. man what did did I, boats, the plane, did, the car. Did you get? Did you get the Mike Tyson tiger? Did you like ride around with that to have a tiger with like a gold chain or something? Or was there is there anything about that where you're like, okay, uh, this is this is going too far? That would be super fun. There was a period of time where I was looking at buying an island, which got pretty crazy, trying to figure out who owns the island. Because, you know, islands are usually usually claimed or belong to one country or another, but some of them are in between. So there was there were some interesting options. I was I was planning on buying an island and turning it into this like crazy party island, which was interesting. I had an idea back in the early 90s for a Bitcoin-like currency, which was published in the London Observer. They mentioned it. I was going to call it ecstasy dollars well before Bitcoin, by the way, which was pretty interesting. You know, I was never, I liked cars, exotic cars. I, I had purchased a Mercedes-Benz Gullwing, which was fantastic, Ferraris. I was a collector of Porsches. I bought one of the first Acura NSXs that came out, beautiful cars. There was a lot of spending like that. I had bought houses. Oh, this is crazy. How about this? I bought a church yeah. once in LA. I bought a massive church that was uh, being foreclosed on. And I just walked in and I said, how much? And they told me, and I, I was like, let's do it. I, we wired the money the next day, no inspection, no escrow, none of that <laughs> stuff. And we moved in and there was this huge red carpet leading up to a pulpit. And I remember the movers going, where do you want your desk? And I thought to myself, yeah, just put it right up there on the, uh, on the pulpit. And so I had my, I had my desk for a period of time right on top of the altar of a big, big church. That was, that was fun for a minute. It was a massive building. Super fun. That's, that's so fun. That's so fun. I, I just, I don't know. I, I, all the things I'm picturing is, is, is just ridiculous in the mindset of, of yeah. having like, you know, people come in to try to do business and then you have like these church going singers in the background, just clapping their hands. And I, yeah, this is so, so talk to me about the transition. So you, you went from herbal ecstasy and then you got into the areas of digital vaporization. What was the transition from herbal ecstasy to digital vaporization and how did you make that how did you cross that chasm yeah great question so the government became a real pain in the fucking ass man because they decided that they were going to sue me out of existence they had no real excuse me you feel like you're going to sneeze but you don't actually sneeze that's what i have going on right now but they thought to themselves how are we going to get this kid and they couldn't get me i wasn't doing anything illegal so what happened was eventually they they clamped down so many lawsuits, so many actions. I had in-house legal counsel. I, I was spending millions of dollars in lawsuits until I just got tired out. It became a ca- game of cat and mouse. They'd ban one ingredient, and then I would come out, and they'd be like, like and they'd be like, hey, it's your new ingredient. I'd be like, it's this. this. And come up with another ingredient, and I would mention it, and they would ban that, and eventually I got rid of it. Sold that out, and I decided to go figure out a, a different problem, to solve a different problem. And, and this was the human had been burning plants since the dawn of time to get 
the active elements of those plants, the nicotine, the cannabinoids, which the THC, all the active elements in the plants that we want to enjoy and benefit from. But as a byproduct, because we were burning them, we were getting smoke, tar, and carbon monoxide, the three carcinogenic elements, three of the most common carcinogenic elements found in smoking. I thought to myself that we need to change the paradigm. What if there was a way once again, disrupt this industry. What if there was a way where you could get those benefits, the cannabinoids, the THC, the nicotine, I mean, a ton of herbs that you could enjoy without burning it? If So it turns out if you heat a plant to the point where it releases its activants, for example, with cannabis, THC, but not to the point where you burn it, you could enjoy all that stuff. Well, was anybody doing it? Nobody was doing it. So I went out there, I patented it, I built the prototypes, I built the actual device, and we built the world's first phaser. A digital vaporization was formed. True vaporizer, I should say. There were people making attempts at this kind of thing, but nobody had ever really done it until we came along. I patented it. I got some of the world's best scientists to help me refine, the best engineers to me refine and perfect the technology. And the first device that we had was the size of a ketchup bottle, but it was portable, it was wireless, and it was a true vaporizer. It had digital controls in it. So you could heat your plant up just to the point where it gives you all the good stuff, but not to the point where you get the smoke, tar, carbon monoxide. Turns out that around 300, 400 degrees, you can get all the THC, you can get all the nicotine, but you're not burning it. When you burn something, you heat it up to 1200 and you get all that nasty stuff. Plus, your plant material goes a lot longer, you need a lot less, and the effects are a lot cleaner. It turns out that a lot of the effects with smoking that people get where they get a headache, getfulness, they get all that stuff, could be from the fact that they're smoking it. So we solved, actually, we got it down to the size of a cigar and then to the size of a smaller cigar and then size of like a cigarette kind of thing, a little bit bigger than that. Then that company, went public. I exited the company and on to becoming, uh, getting back into the nootropic space. Been uh, had my kid, got married, and decided, hey man, you know, uh, I need to improve my mental performance. So I built this nootropic pill after uh, you know the movie Liveless uh, called Accelerol. And there was another one called Focus Plus. We still sell them on Amazon for anybody who's interested. But I didn't have a place to sell these things. They were expensive at the time. They were like $100 a bottle. Now, you know, it's a lot less. You can get on Amazon for like 30 or 40 bucks, something like that. But back in those days, it was 120 bucks for a bottle of this stuff. And I couldn't figure out like if I was going to sell it by subscription or what the business model was for it. And now remember back in the days in the, in the 2000s where... Jeff Bezos was not the richest man in the world. He would respond to emails. You could email Jeff at Amazon.com and he'd respond to you. You could possibly get him on the end of the phone. Amazon had opened up their platform, as we heard through the grapevine, to third-party sellers to sell on the Amazon platform. And I thought to myself, well, this is a cool opportunity. Let me try to sell on here. I listed it overnight. I went to sleep. Woke up in the morning to thousands of orders at $120 a bottle. No marketing, no advertising, nothing. Just put it up. And I said, holy shit. This is it. This is where the game changes. Let me look into this Bezos guy. And I looked into him and I thought, man, that guy looks like a chump, but he's 
not a chump. This guy is not one of those goofy nerds. It's not going anywhere. This is one of the most important e-commerce pioneers of our time. And he's going to this platform to be the greatest e-commerce platform that we've ever known. He's going to create more millionaires and billionaires than anybody in recent history. Turns out it was true. And wow. so I've spent the last 10, 11 years mastering the Amazon platform. And in the last couple of years, I've opened up all the stuff that I've learned to other people like me and you, average people, to get in and create these Amazon businesses where we teach them how to find products. We teach them how to select products. We teach them how to tell the story on Amazon to create these predictable revenue streams so they don't have to make the biggest mistake that most starting entrepreneurs make, which is selling your fucking hours for money. It is the worst crime you can do to yourself. You may have to do some of it to get to where you're going, and I respect that. That's okay. But you need to have your mind on the prize. When I was coming up, never for a second, and I had tons of shitty jobs, I never thought to myself that ultimately I'm going to be selling my hours for time. And that's what I try to encourage people to do. Start a business, have a foundation of safety, have foundational thinking and go out there and create these businesses, bring you money without you having to work your hours for them. That's incredibly powerful. I mean, a couple of things I want to touch along, along that journey. Uh, one thing I've noticed is a, is a pattern that I see in yours where you, you see that there's a demand, you see where there, there's interest. And then what you do is you legalize it. You, you, you increase safety and certainty and you mitigate risk, which then creates a basically a, a juxtaposition of value. The juxtaposition of value is there's a demand for ecstasy. There's, a, there's an illegal market, but there is, there is no supply. I'm going to make something legal and available and then pop that up. There's a demand and interest for smoking plants of some kind of shape and form. So then I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it safe. I'll make it reliable. I'm going to make it healthy. And so you, it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is you you remove a lot of the risk in an opportunity that there's already demand. And when there's a lot of risk, you know, I, just, and so I've seen that path. I love um, that, man. In fact, I think it could go both ways. You're right. Mm -hmm. I think it could be that I remove the risk and I add the risk. In uh, Nassim Taleb's book, The Black Swan, great book, by the way, mm -hmm. he talks about how the amount of success that individuals have is exactly commensurate with the amount of risk that they take. So the guy working at, at a fast food restaurant has a lot less risk than the guy that owns the restaurant, but the amount of success that each could have is commensurate with the amount of risk that they're taking. Well, it's on both sides of the equation. And, and well, yeah, what you're exactly talking about is you're lowering the risk for the consumer by absorbing the risk for yourself, by taking on the chance that you can actually make something happen. You know, you can, you're lowering the risk of the herbal. You say, I'm going to take on the risk. I believe I'm going to invest my time in this space. I believe I can lower the risk for my consumer, which will then up my own value. Because, because there's, a, there's different ways that you can actually create value for somebody. You can create, you can increase your promise. This will, this will make everything happen. You can increase the likelihood of that thing happening, right? Or you can decrease time and effort. Or you can decrease the risk. So, so, so what you did is in, in that likelihood, you said, okay, you're not going to get arrested. You're not going to get in trouble. You're going to have the benefits, right? And we're going to make this really easy because you're going to be able to get it from the same dealers just the way that you're used to getting it, right? And so that the, and the, and the same thing with Jeff Bezos is what he did. It's not, he didn't overpromise and overdeliver. He went to the other side of the equation and he lowered the friction. 
he lowered the effort, he lowered the time right. to, to get what you needed. So, which is really, it's, it's a really interesting model. So when you're thinking about going into these businesses, are you looking at, because Amazon is a commodity market. It's a commodity. There's a lot of commodities out there. And it seems like what you're doing is, is educating people on how to increase the perceived value of the products that they sell on there. Is that the focus of it? I'll tell you my exact formula. And this is my formula for life selling products. I've sold products on and off Amazon. I've sold hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars, billions of dollars in my time of product. So the answer is this. This is the formula. Find a market. Not the other way around. Don't create a product and then go looking for a market for it. Find a market. Find what that market needs. Go as niche as you can without getting too small where there's no profit for you. And then come in and fucking dominate that niche. How do you dominate that niche? You dominate it by exercising what Cal calls influence. The five elements of influence. Social proof, authority, consistency, sincerity, reciprocity, scarcity, all those things. Actually, six. Reciprocity is the sixth. You exercise influence. And what that means is, is that you have to know how to tell the story. You actually, Dylan, will be an expert at this because you are an expert at virtual reality. And we all know that how you tell a story in virtual reality is very different from any other medium that we have ever experienced. There's different variables. There's different environments. You've got so much going on in the virtual reality world that the language of virtual reality that you would use to tell a story in that environment is going to be very different from an in-person interaction and it's going to be very different from a e-commerce online so that's going to be very very different mm. in the amazon world what we teach is that there is a format to telling your story there's a way to tell your story there's a way to master that and by the way for anybody who's watching your show, I will offer my Amazon Mastery course for free. I've got a one-hour crash course that teaches them to go from zero to Amazon seller in a very short time. I'll teach them how to find a product, how to get reviews, how to do all that stuff. And I will. it's normally 200 bucks With your permission, all your viewers and listeners for free, if they reach out to me at fbasellercourse.com, I'm sure, sure you'll include it in the show notes. Or if they email me, I'll, I'll, can I give out my direct email? Yeah, please go for it. Yeah. So um, if you guys want to reach out to me, I answer all emails. I take pride in getting the inbox zero every day. Thanks to David Allen getting things done. So you could reach out to me. I will respond to you. I respond to every single message. It's going to be darkzess at gmail.com. D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S at gmail.com. Reach out to me if you're interested. Put the show name in the title, and I will include the $200 course for you for free. So you guys know. But at the, end of, at the end of the day, it's about, like you said, how do you get the cheat codes? What are the cheat codes? The cheat codes are tell a better fucking story. There are so many products on Amazon. I'll tell you, I'm a big fan of uh, Microsoft laptops. I know it's an unpopular viewpoint, but I really fucking love the Surface books. They're like aluminum. They're just built really fucking well. They rarely break, touch, all that stuff. And I was buying a power supply for them. Now... All the power supplies have a USB connector inside the power supply, so you can connect your phone to the power supply if you're on the go or wherever, so an extra phone charger. Okay. On Amazon, there's 400 different adapters for the Surface Book, ranging from $599, $6, all the way up until $70. I bought a $25 one. I also bought 
<clears throat> the cheaper ones. They're all the same. And they have revenue from $500 to nothing to $10,000 a month selling these aftermarket laptop adapters. They're all the fucking same thing. What's the difference? Why does one guy have $20,000 a month in profit and another guy have $700 a month in profit? The products are all the same. The difference is the one guy shows you that it has the USB adapter and he points an arrow to it. It's got a little fast USB charging 3.4 amp thing on there. And he's telling that story. That's the only difference. He's taken my course. He's figured out how to tell the story of what the consumer wants. And that's it. That's the only difference. He didn't sell a better product. He didn't sell it for cheaper. That guy's selling it for more, but he can get two or three times the amount of money by telling the story in a way that's palatable for the consumer. And like you're saying, alleviating those points of friction. Because my point of friction is, dude, I want to buy a fucking laptop thing. I got to fly out to Vegas tomorrow. I'm doing a, a big podcast. I don't have time to fucking test these things and see if it's got a USB. I just need it the way it fucking is supposed to be. And this guy realizes that he tells that story. He's got me as a customer. Chances are there's more like me. That's incredibly powerful what you're talking about there. Because a lot of times, I mean, they're, just because something is inherently valuable doesn't mean it's perceived as valuable. And yeah. it's, it's about can, can you communicate? And if you can meet a customer where they are, and what you're talking about is if you understand the language of your customer, if you understand what motivates your customer, if you understand the emotional needs, the what they want, and you can actually meet them in their mind and tell a story to meet them there, then their ability to understand and then desire product just magnifies outwards. But if you're not using their language, if you're not using, if you're not painting their concerns, if you do not, if you do not, if you do not actually give them enough reasons that go, you get me, because if you can actually paint if you can actually paint the pain in the customer's mind and show them the path out of that and actually say, I get you better than you do, they will they will then open up their hearts, their minds, and walls because he gets me. He gets this pain. He gets where I'm at. He understands what this is. He understands that this little port is the fast charging port because this is what I want because I need to make it to my I need to I need to charge this thing up because I got this thing due because I've got to get to a podcast and this is what's really important to me. Right? So that's a really powerful thing that being able to create perceived value through storytelling and then matching the needs of the customer to the actual product that you have. That's a really powerful lesson that you have there and creating the storytelling, um, the storytelling models. Is there um, with that, with the, the lessons of creating storytelling models, is there a process you go? Because you talked about, well, here's my formula. And, um, and I appreciate you offering, offering that to the course. And um, we can put that inside the show notes as well. Um, but you talked about finding the market, finding the niche, the needs of the market. How do you find the needs of the market? What does that look like for you? Like, how do you fully understand that, that these are the actual needs versus what you think are the needs being an actual entrepreneur um, trying to create a product? Excellent question. So there's tools that we use. And again, in the one hour course, I'll share all those tools with them. But now on Amazon platform in particular, there's tools we could use to spy sales. If you're selling on Amazon, I know exactly what you're selling. I know where you're selling it. I know who you're selling it to. There's ways for us to gather that kind of information. Obviously, you can glean the reviews to kind of figure out what kind of people are there. But there's third-party software, and we have our own proprietary softwares that show us what the sales are. And from there, we start reverse engineering. So we always look at the numbers. Look at, hey, what what's selling dollar-wise? Another easy way to do it is to look into your shopping cart, your Amazon shopping cart, and to take a look at 
what products you've bought in the last few years. And this is this is the crazy thing, Dylan. When people start taking my course, they're like, oh my God, I had no idea. I've been completely manipulated to buying these other products. I'm like, yeah, that's what smart Amazon sellers do. When you see a product on page one, it's not there by mistake. It's there because savvy Amazon sellers like my students have figured out how to get the algorithm to move their way how to get you. And then when you get on that listing, our goal is to get you to click the buy button as quickly as possible. And we know that that's only done if you have those elements in place. If you have your social proof, which are your reviews, if you have authority, if the product looks consistent, it's just consistent. Do you look like a shitty little product that's made in a cheap factory somewhere? Or are you something that's of quality? How do I know? Are your pictures nice? There's all these elements that go into building these listings and telling these stories. And if you can master that, man, sky's the limit. It's absolutely true because you are you're, you are creating a, a, a narrative in the mind of the customer, which is incredibly profound. The quality images, the storytelling, the bullet points, the the understanding what the specific needs are for the product versus what what the features are. You know, speaking more to the benefits and the emotional impact versus the actual feature sets. With that, what I mean, creating this course. I mean, you've gone on quite the journey from herbal ecstasy to vaporization pills to getting onto Amazon with nootropics and now teaching people along that path, uh, going along the circle from being an entrepreneur to being a mentor of entrepreneurs, that's kind of the hero's journey arc. What is your holy grail of being a mentor and actually teaching people about how to master Amazon? When one of my students succeeds and they can quit their job and stop selling their hours. That's the ultimate. That is the pinnacle. And I had somebody just the other day call me and be like, Shaheen, I've been doing this grind for 15 years and I can finally leave it. I can leave it because I know my family's taken care of. I know that my family's supported. I know that I can now move on and use the skills that you've taught me to create businesses that provide recurring revenue. I'm going to buy some cash flow positive real estate. I'm going to buy some stocks that are bringing me compounding interest. And I'm going to, going to build those foundational thoughts and start living like I knew I could. That, that is the pinnacle for me when I can create that wealth in others. It's one thing to create wealth for yourself. It's fun. You know, yeah. you can do a lot more when you're rich than when you're poor, but it's really not as fun as when you share it with others. Having wealth and sharing that wealth, sharing that knowledge, that that's the pinnacle. That's powerful. And one of the things that it's, I mean, what I'm hearing you say is that you are providing the freedom and the opportunity that you sought as a child and you're sharing that with others. So, I love that. Sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> well, that's what I'm hearing so, you say. It was a, lot, a lot along the way, you're saying, I wanted to be free. I want another path. I want another opportunity. I didn't want to sell my hours for time and money. I didn't want to do this. And then I said, what's the holy grail? It's like, I want, I want them to quit their day job. I want them to stop selling their hours for time and money. I want, I want to provide freedom and opportunity that I sought, but I just want to make it easier and better than I had to do it along my path. And, and then be that conduit, that emotion that you gave yourself as a child. Yeah, great words, man. I oftentimes, Dylan, tell people that time is the new luxury. If you got a bunch of money, but your time isn't your own, like the guy in my earlier example who's got the house and the car and everything, but he's working his fingers to the bone, he doesn't get to enjoy it, that's not really value. The real luxury is being able to do, it's freedom. And freedom is defined as being able to do what you want, when you want, with who you want, how you want. Yeah. 
That's that's very powerful, and it's actually one of the one of the, the tropes of VR is the, the, the power to be yeah. anywhere, any place, anytime, anyone. Um, if, if that is the holy grail, what do you think is the dragon that is protecting the grail for you personally? Like, what do you think is the is the thing that you need to overcome in order to uh, achieve that holy grail success? Well, for me, I've achieved my financial success, my family success. I'm in a pretty good place in my life. But I don't fucking sleep. I mean, I do sleep because sleep is important. I'm big into biohacking and and physically being at the top of my game, especially as I get to my 40s, late 40s, I should say. But at the end of the day, I think you have to constantly stay up. And I tell this to people all the time. Competition is a dual-edged sword. And this is one of my favorite quotes. It's actually from my book, Billion, How I Became Kirill Pocalt. When you are sleeping, your enemies are planning your demise. And I tell people, my students, to write that down and put it up on the wall. There is no participation award for second place. There is no pat on the back for trying. At the end of the day, you need to go in, you need to be aggressive, and you need to fucking win. And if you don't win, you lose. That's the way of the world. You can fail and that's okay. I oftentimes look at entrepreneurs and I'm like, dude, you need to go out there and fucking fail. You need to try to fail. They're like, what? What do you, I thought we were about winning. I say, no, no, you need to go out there and fucking try to fail. He's why? I'm like, because you suffer from perfection paralysis. Well, what's that? That's when you have a crisis of confidence. So what you tell yourself is that yours is going to be better than everybody else. You have to be perfect. Everybody did it this way, but you're doing it this way. It's preventing you from coming out with the MVP, your minimum viable product, and doing what my idol, Seth Godin, one of the great marketing gurus of our time, talks about is shipping. If you don't mm. ship, if nobody gets your product or service of what you're putting out into the world, you're not fucking doing anything. You're going to be driving Uber for the rest of your fucking life. You need to ship. And if that product that you're shipping is good enough, you can get out there and ship it, man. Don't become paralyzed by perfection. And the way you solve that is you seek failure. You say, you know what? I got 10 grand. I'm ready to burn it. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try to fail. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try to fail. That's what I'm going to I'm going to be smart about it. I'm going to use everything within my power not to fail or not to lose. But you know what? I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try till failure. And maybe I'll lose money. Maybe I'll win money. But what I won't lose is the lesson. Mm, that's powerful. And that's a really powerful mindset too, to, that, that staying hungry. The When you're sleeping, your enemies are playing. The enemies could be, it could be your own inner self, honestly, because you're, you're stopping you from getting you to where you want to go. And there's a lot of, is a comfort I often view as the enemy because it's 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 keep it wants to keep you safe but it stops you from getting to where you want to go and I think it's a it's a really powerful lesson to to keep you hungry and to, and to keep you on that edge. Uh, with with that being said, um, is there anything else you'd like to let people know about before you tell them again how they can get a hold of you? Yeah, totally, man. So we've got a podcast as well, which I want to invite you and all of your uh, viewers and listeners to take a part of. It's called Hack and Grow Rich. We just launched not too long ago. We're up to about 65,000 subscribers. There's a lot of buzz about it. We talk about unconventional workarounds, which is what a hack is to becoming successful, making money, and making it in there to, to, to getting the cheat codes. I really love that line. You gave me one of the best lines ever. So to getting the cheat codes to life, 
which is what we talk about. So make sure to like, subscribe, and download it at Hack and Grow Rich. You can get that on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever podcasts are found. Also, my book just dropped, the audio book just dropped today. The actual hardcover book is available on Amazon. It's called Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. So please check that out if you can. Um, I enjoyed writing it, so I hope you guys enjoy reading it. And lastly, again, for anybody that's interested in the Amazon seller course, 200 bucks, guys. I'm giving it to you guys for free. Just mention the show or mention Dylan, and we will offer that to you for free. No obligation, no expense, no credit card, nothing. Either email me at the email in the show notes or go ahead and go to fbasellercourse.com or shaheenshan.com. Reach out. Let me know you heard it on Dylan's show, and I will give you that course for free. You cannot beat that. And really, if you're looking for a side hustle, if you're looking for a main hustle, you're looking for a way to get ahead in life, there will not be more wealth created on any other channel in the next 20 years than Amazon. And now you're at the ground floor as of 2021 perfect time to get in. So take me up on the on the offer. We get nothing. You get the one-hour course. If I can inspire you to become successful, if anything that we've said on this show has inspired you, reach out and let me help you on your journey. Jaheen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this, was, this was a beautiful experience. Thank you for the offer for the, uh, the listeners. Very much appreciate it. And, uh, and I love all the work that you do. And uh, I look forward to uh, purchasing one of your products on Amazon, either knowingly or unknowingly. I think it's wonderful. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your story. And uh, have a blessed and beautiful day. I'll talk to you later, my friend. Yeah, honored to be on. Thank you, Dylan. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes Quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or, if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.